if you are a, um, under the age of maybe 25 or you have a child who's under that age, you might have heard of, the, of someone named Mr. Beast. <laughs> My friend over here, I, talk, I do uh, um, student ministry obviously still here at Resurrection, and Mr. Beast is well known amongst our students, but he is a uh, world famous and highly successful entertainer, YouTuber, uh, multi-billionaire probably at this point, has given away millions of dollars, uh, really smart businessman, uh, and he's 24. Okay, he's, he is very, very, very successful um, for a lot of reasons. But he was asked recently in an interview um, if he ever thought he would like settle down and uh, maybe not settle down, but at least have a family, get married, have kids. And this was his uh, answer. He said, here's the thing. Elon has kids, Steve Jobs has kids, Bill Gates has kids, all these ultra-successful people, not that I want to be them or whatever, but all these other successful people do it and they don't regret it. I'm kind of like in that weird area where I'm still trying to figure out, would it make me fulfilled? Investing my life in a mini version of me and programming its brain to be a little genius, is that something I would enjoy enough where I wouldn't mind basically setting aside 18 years of my life from the business? Um, if you have a child, you're going, um, this isn't necessarily how it works. Um, and there's, there's a lot of layers here. There's a lot of things we could talk about. Um, and it's, so it's a value of mine actually to speak well of people that we, you know, public figures that we um, quote. So uh, like I just said, he's done a lot of good things, charity. Um, I, I think, though, that in addition to that, he's actually being really, really honest about his motivators and about the, the, the lens through which or the grid through which he evaluates how to make decisions in the world. And he's not unique. I think he's actually representative of not just that generation, but really the culture at large. This is intergenerational. This is the dominant way the culture thinks about things. And here's what's being said. He realizes, I'd say to his credit, that being a parent uh, is worth doing well and will take him out of uh, his business in some sense. He won't be able to just be an absent dad. So that's a good thing, right? Um, but he, uh, he, he has two things that uh, he, he says need, need to happen. One is he has to decide that it is fulfilling enough and makes him happy enough that it's worth doing and putting these other things aside. It has to be a, a, a big enough add to his own self-fulfillment and happiness that it makes sense to do and put other things on hold, right? So self-fulfillment is uh, one of the things that has to happen for it to be a worthwhile pursuit. Um, I think in the suburbs, uh, maybe not just in the suburbs, maybe everywhere, a lot of this like vicarious living through our children, like making them awesome so we feel awesome, that happens. So he's just saying it really plainly, but it's happening in our culture. The other thing, and it was kind of a throwaway statement in there, is something about cloning himself. Um, I think that he, there was a little bit of a, a slip there where he spoke better than he knew, and there's this other aspect of, of uh, how we make decisions and how we go about living our lives that has to do with self-preservation. There's self-fulfillment. Will it, will it make me have, and, and fulfillment, there's meaning, there's purpose, there's happiness, and will, will it preserve my life? Will it eliminate pain? Will it eliminate or, or put off death longer? Will it give me, so here's this 24-year-old guy who has everything, basically, in front of him, financially, all the opportunities in the world, he's opening businesses, and he's got to decide, if it, if, what help, how do I go up from here? Is this going to be 
that much better than what I've already got going that I can go up from here? And how do I make this go on? I mean, this is the age-old question of like world leaders. How do I extend my legacy past my life? Because I know that actually this is going to end. So self-preservation and self-fulfillment. Do you see that? And would you agree these are primary motivators for why we do what we do in the world? I mean, the health and fitness industry, the medicine industry, for self-preservation, all these different things. And what I would say is that the desires for self-preservation to escape death and the desire for self-fulfillment are actually God-given desires. It's not something that laugh or scoff at. It's actually something God has given us. You were meant to be fulfilled, and you were meant to live forever. The question is, how do you get that? And where do you find it? In God alone is there perfect truth, eternity, love, and joy. Augustine says it this way, we were exiled from this unchanging joy. See, we were created in this perfect relationship with God where um, we would have this everlasting joy. If, if, if Adam and Eve had, had continued in obedience and had grown in the grace of God, they would have continued on to have this felicity of life. The church fathers talk about this extensively. Yet, he says, it's, it has been broken, yet it's not so broken and cut off that we stopped seeking eternity, truth, and happiness altogether. We still seek these things, don't we? We still seek self-preservation. We still seek truth and happiness and self-fulfillment. Even in our exiled and sinful state, God draws near and he actually answers these felt needs to be preserved and to be fulfilled. He sends his son, Jesus Christ, to be the God-man, the Messiah, Emmanuel, who is fully divine and fully human. Today we will see how this Jesus, the God-man, Emmanuel, actually solves our desires for self-preservation and self-fulfillment. He actually solves our desires for self-preservation and self-fulfillment. So first, Jesus the God-man solves our uh, desire for self-preservation. We're going to look directly at the story of Isaiah 7. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it. Isaiah chapter 7. It's right after Isaiah chapter 6 in your Bible. If you uh, have a, a device, if you don't have a physical copy, that's great. Open uh, your phone, get, get an app. Uh, I encourage you just to see the text right in front of you as we're looking at it. So immediately at the beginning of our reading that was in, in verse 10, it says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. You go, okay, who's Ahaz? Good question. There's a lot of kings in the history of Israel. If you're not super familiar with the timeline, we've got to like dig in and see what this is about. Well, we go back um, at the beginning of chapter 7. It says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. There we go. Ahaz is the king of Judah. He's the king of the southern kingdom of Israel that had been divided. He's the heir of David. Like David the beloved, Solomon, going on. This is Ahaz, okay, king of Judah. Well, what happens? Um, setting the scene, he's the king of Judah, the king of the northern kingdom, and the king of Syria. Their names are Rezin and Pekah. They get together and they say, hey, let's take over Judah. So they come and they're going to besiege Judah. And Ahaz gets really uncomfortable and nervous about that because the two is greater than the one, right? And he's like, oh my gosh, we're going to get squelched. 
Well, just north of them on the other side is a big kingdom called Assyria. Um, he, if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 16, Ahaz gets really nervous, and what does he do about it? He wants to preserve his life, doesn't he? He wants to preserve his kingdom. He wants to preserve his home. He wants to preserve what he has. So he ransacks the temple for all of its gold, and he sends it to the king of Assyria as tribute and says, here's all of our gold from the temple. Will you please come to our aid and squash these people who are about to take us over? It's a pretty tense situation right here. The king of Assyria, it says, listens to him, and he goes and he helps defeat these two enemies. Ahaz was not someone who obeyed God. Uh, it says in 2 Kings 16, he, he did not uh, obey the law of the Lord. He did not worship the Lord. He went um, and he worshiped and he acted just in the same way as the nations who had been there before Israel acted. He was sacrificing to idols. He even, it says, burned his own son on an altar to an idol. This is the kind of guy we're dealing with here. So he's completely concerned with preserving his position. He's trying to preserve his wealth. He's trying to preserve the kingdom of Judah. And he's going to do whatever it takes to do that. He's taking initiative into his own hands. Well, God says in, uh, through uh, Isaiah in those first nine verses of chapter 7, he says, don't worry about these two guys. Stand firm and have faith. Have faith. You don't need to go off to Assyria. You need to have faith and believe that God will save you. God alone can preserve your life and preserve the kingdom. He is powerful to do it, even if the odds don't seem in your favor. So this is where we get into our passage. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. That's called a merism. It can be anything that you can think of or see from below the depths of the earth or to the universe. Like ask for a sign to show that God really will come and rescue you. Whatever you want. Okay, God, uh, prove, prove that you're going to rescue me by making a cow erupt out of the ground. Or so. I mean, it could have been anything. And Ahaz gives this false uh, uh, religiosity. He gives this false hypocritical uh, answer. He says, I won't ask. I don't want to put the Lord to the test. And we know that that's a hypocritical, because Jesus says the same thing in the wilderness. Don't put the Lord your God to the test, right? What's the difference here? Jesus does that out of faith because he's like, I don't have to test the Lord. I know he's going to save me. Here, it's, I don't think he's actually going to do it. Because here's what Isaiah says in response in verse 13. He said, Hear then, O house of David. He doesn't even call him by his name. O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? You wearied men by your, the men of your kingdom by being really a flimsy, flaky about how you're going to defend it. You went off to the king of Assyria your people can't even trust in you. Are you also going to, I'm offering you a chance to, to get a sign that you're going to be rescued and you're not going to take advantage of it? Fine. Therefore, verse 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign whether you like it or not. Here's the sign. The virgin, the young woman, will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, when he's still very little, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So I'm actually still going to rescue you even though you didn't come to me for doing it. And I am going to actually use Assyria, but here's what then is going to happen. Then the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria." 
Then, not only, so he's saying in verse 17, I'm gonna conquer these kings that are trying to destroy you, but then the one that you went to who wasn't me is then gonna be your taskmaster. See, you've sworn allegiance to him. You've given your gold, your time, your money. And now to keep that preservation going, if you try to, if you try to back out of that, you think Assyria is gonna be happy? Like you think you're gonna backpedal that relationship? No, you're now the buffer country between them and Egypt. We got some geopolitical drama going on now, right? They're not gonna just let you out of that relationship. In fact, a few years later, they try to back out of it. Assyria gets mad. This is when Hezekiah is king, who's his son. And God actually does help them defeat the Assyrians and they go away. But God has to intervene through a righteous king to do that. But at this moment, that, that's not gonna happen. Um, I was watching a video confession from a bodybuilder, strength training guy, who was jacked out of his mind. He's so big, he's so strong. And uh, he came out and talked about um, his uh, steroid use. This is not the liver king, if you're wondering. That was something that came, got really popular. This is another guy named Larry Wheels. And he talked about how, he's in his 20s, he talked about how now for the rest of his life, because of the amount of steroids he started using as a teenager, he's gonna have to be on hormonal, basically, treatment or therapy the rest of his life. This is a massive financial commitment because his body will no longer produce the kind of hormones that it needs to be healthy. There's this, uh, within that culture, there was this, this drive for greater health, for greater uh, vitality, for greater strength, for greater size that caused them to go to something as a help, like in Assyria, right? They, they'd have to take these substances that then make it so that you can never back out of the relationship. It's a really vivid and poignant picture of what happens in our medical and our health world. That we try to go about all these different ways to, to preserve for ourselves life, to preserve for ourselves a memory, to preserve for ourselves a, a reputation and a legacy. And um, throughout this story and throughout our world, we then become slaves to those very things that we try to um, get to come to our rescue. That's what happens. We become slaves to them. Ahaz sent all his gold to the king in the name of self-preservation. It was a fear-based and a self-interested act. It was not faith-based. It put him in subservience to that king. In contrast, we seek to root ourselves in the care and the provision of God. Now, how does that preserve our life? How does that help when the king of, of Syria and of Israel is trying to come down on Judah? Well, God sends Emmanuel, and if we fast forward a thousand years, or less than a thousand, 700 years to the birth of Christ, we have Jesus in the flesh, God in the flesh, um, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And um, when Jesus comes and he takes on flesh, he takes on our whole humanity. He takes on the nature of human, uh, human beings. So he is fully God and he is fully man. And when he, when he unites that, that nature to himself in the one person, he doesn't just kind of take on just a body. He doesn't just take on just a mind or, or just a soul. He doesn't take on part of what it means to be a human. Jesus is fully human. All of what it means to be human that you and I experience, a mind, a will, a body, talk about temptation, all the experiences, 
he takes on and takes into his person without losing the fact that he is fully God, fully divine, one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, worthy of all praise and worship. So we have Jesus coming a thousand years or 700 years later after this as Emmanuel. This is why it's important. He's born of a virgin and of the Holy Spirit. This is not a natural birth. This is a supernatural birth that uh, ends us up with a Savior who is fully God and fully man. This matters for a couple of reasons. Um, Death and corruption are the thing we're trying to escape in self-preservation, aren't they? Death and corruption are the thing we're trying to escape. And death and corruption are not just an outside force that comes to get us that we can keep at bay with medicine or that we can keep at bay with just being really safe. No, death and corruption have actually crept in and mingled with our very natures in our bodies, both material and immaterial. And if you lived the healthiest life, the most danger-free, risk-free life ever, we would still grow older and we would still break down and decay. It's mingled with our very bodies. And we can't cure death and decay in this world. It had to be someone from the outside who's not subject to death. It had to be someone from the outside who isn't mingled with death, coming to take on our human estate without the curse. Jesus had to be born and take on a full human nature. Jesus did this, but then here's what he did. Because he's fully God, he filled his human nature with life. He's uncorrupted. In fact, it's funny, when you read some of the early fathers, they would say that if he hadn't been killed on the cross, the reason he had to be killed is he never would have died. He just would have kept living. He had to be killed. Athanasius says this, Irenaeus says this. He goes all the way to the grave, and then because he is God, he doesn't stay in the grave. He's not subject to decay. He's not abandoned to decay. No, he rises in power over death. And he's accomplished immortal life for humankind. So he rises as a resurrected human, giving to human nature life and immortality. And then he confers that life and immortality, that human life and immortality that's, that's suffused with the divine life. He then gives that to us when he indwells us by the Holy Spirit. Athanasius says it this way. If death was interwoven with the body and dominated it as if united to it, it was necessary for life to then be interwoven with the body. For life to be interwoven with the body. That's the incarnation. That's God with us. So that the body putting on life could then cast off corruption. This is why in Romans 8, 11, it says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. See, in the beginning, God, he spoke and everything came into existence out of nothing. He created human nature, pure and undefiled, out of nothing. But uh, it's, it's once it was created, once it had fallen, Athanasius talks about how it's fitting and good that he then took on that same nature and as an instrument used his human nature to heal other humans. He didn't just speak, but he actually came into our neighborhood. He came and put on the same nature that we have and through that touched and healed and filled the grave and then filled it with life and then gives that life to us. 
There is no medicine that gives this kind of healing. Because here's the deal. It's not just that he was separated, that he separates us from death. It's not like, um, and I'm, I'm referencing Athanasius a lot because his book on the incarnation is incredible. It's not like you take all this really flammable grass and you move it over here away from the fire. And like, okay, now you're, now you're safe from death. Now he talks about how if like you coated it with a fireproof substance and then you put it in the fire. So when he raises us from the dead, when he gives us life, it's not that we're just separated from harm and we just continue to exist as is. No, we put on immortality. He raises never to die again, it says. And so when he gives us that life, do you know that we're gonna be impervious to death? Do you know that when he gives us life, we're gonna, it's not just that we're preserved, it's not like cryo-freezing, like you're just gonna be stuck like as you are in eternity. No, you're given new life, new vitality. It's, oh, last week we talked about this, that when the mouth is opened, it's like we're singing. When the, when the, when the ears are open, or when the, when the legs start working, it's like we're dancing. It's this overabundant life that God gives us out of the overflow of himself. And then that can never be taken away because he has not only put death away from us, but he's filled it with his divine life. There's an imperviousness to death and there's blessedness forever. So you don't need to clone yourself. You don't need to um, figure out how to you know, cryogenically freeze yourself. You don't have to um, worry about how you will be preserved in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, life and immortality is conferred on you by Jesus Christ, with whom you are united by the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? You're given life forever. You're like, I mean, this is, this is like fairy tale stuff. Yeah, it is like fairy tale stuff. That's why they write fairy tales, because we want this to be true, and it is true. It is the true story of the world, and it is your future if you believe in Jesus Christ and are in the kingdom of God. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? Athanasius talks about, I gotta, I gotta go here. He talks about, well, how, how do you know this is true? He's like, well, um, all these different people in the early church went gladly to their death. They went gladly to their death, martyred, knowing that this wasn't the end. It was actually a pathway to future glory. And it didn't just happen for a, a local people with their local God who didn't honor other God. No, it's happened across ethnic lines, across national borders. There are people dying all over the world for the kingdom of God who are not afraid because they're filled with this courage of eternal life. And those who knew Jesus saw him resurrected. And that confidence gives us the strength to carry on in this world where there is pain. Of course we take medicine. Of course we treat illness. That's good and right. I believe God gives that to us for a reason. But the way we go about it, if we're trusting in our security as people in modern medicine and technology, we're missing another level of soul, um, of eternal life that's there for us. And that's where we put our hope and our trust in God. We don't trust in other saviors. We trust in God alone. So God, the, uh, Jesus, the God-man, solves our desire for self-preservation. But not only does he solve our desire for self-preservation, he solves our desire for self-fulfillment. 
Now, if preservation is, is, is kind of oriented at the body, this is, this is too sim- simpl- simplistic. It's all kind of connected together, but I think it's helpful to delineate that if, if self-preservation is oriented at the body, I really think that self-fulfillment is oriented at the soul. That there's this like immaterial, like what is it that makes us different from, animals aren't asking like, do I want a happier life? It's like survival, right? It's instinct, it's, it's procreation. Uh, we're asking something much bigger and much deeper of ourselves. And that's, that's what makes us human. And it comes from the soul. In the Christian worldview, these are so connected, um, but it, it's important to, to see the difference there. Um, in the world, happiness can only come with me as the end goal. If I'm the end goal, if I'm made happy, then I'm fulfilled. If I have meaning and purpose that comes in me and from me, then I am fulfilled. This is how the world um, defines fulfillment. In the world, also, if that's the case, my meaning and purpose must center on me and must be attained through the things that I do or accomplish or the, the, the status that I take on. My fulfillment has to do completely with where I jockey my, and put, put myself and position myself in the world, the kinds of possessions I take on. It all comes down on me. And this is a problem, isn't it? Why is this a problem? Well, step one, I don't achieve meaning and fulfillment as I've decided to, and so I, just, I sink into despair, depression, bitterness. Or, I don't achieve that meaning and fulfillment as I've decided for myself. So I change the target and I aim at something else. Maybe I have more hope and more grit. I aim for something else. And the race begins again. We've all been there, haven't we? Or I do achieve meaning and fulfillment as I've decided I need to, but it's not permanent. And I have to maintain it through constant effort or again move the goalposts and attain more. There's a famous, um, I I think it's famous, interview with Tom Brady when he was, after he had won three Super Bowls. So this is, you know, when I was a child or something. And uh, he was being interviewed and he had not yet been married. He was voted like most eligible bachelor in America. He had three Super Bowls. He was on top of the world. He's being interviewed on 60 Minutes. And they're, they're asking him about his, his personal life, and he's being really, really um, uh, candid. And he says, why is it that I have three Super Bowls, three Super Bowl rings? I got all the money I want. I've, I've made it. A lot of people would say, this is it. This is life. And I'm thinking, gosh, is this all? Is this it? There's got to be more, right? You can look this up. Tom Brady. He got to where it said, this is the pinnacle. There's got to be more. And we see this, the collapse of people who achieve everything the world says that we're supposed to achieve, and the collapse happens. There was, it wasn't satisfying. It actually didn't fill us up. It actually didn't do what it said it was supposed to do. So even if you get to a place, maybe you're at a place right now where you're like, I actually am really fulfilled with the things I'm doing. Even if they're not oriented at God, even if they are worldly. Here's the deal. Does it love you back? Will it last forever? Does it actually solve all your problems, both body and soul? 
If the answer to any of those is no, it's not ultimate. Like it's not gonna last forever if it's, if it's based in the world. It's, it's not gonna love you back if it's just money or fame or some abstract thing or possessions. And it definitely isn't gonna solve your problem if it's just a natural worldly thing because you were made for more than just a naturally world, natural worldly life. So what, a, what if instead of this, what if instead of this, this rat race and this, this, this um, uh, um, effort to achieve fulfillment in myself that's, that's, that's aimed at myself, that's, that's oriented at myself, what if meaning and purpose were given? What if they were given to you? What if it was a gift? What if you didn't have to earn it? What if you didn't have to attain it? What if you could achieve nothing else in your life and you could still be full of meaning and purpose. This is the hardest part of finding fulfillment. It's giving up and letting go of the lies that it's found in me and achieved by me. It's not the case. It's just not. It, those are lies that will lead us to ruin. We cannot bear up that weight. It's a supernatural and eternal weight that you're asking yourself, a natural and limited person, to bear up. And it's not possible. It's not. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Forever, for whoever would save his life, so for whoever would, would preserve his life and try to keep it for himself and try to do his own maneuvering to, to keep it for himself, they will lose it. But whoever loses his life, whoever lets go and gives it to God, they're the ones who will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? This is the context of this verse. It's not about just being immoral or about sacrificing on your values to gain something. This is about what if you do everything the world says to do but you don't take care of the deep fulfillment that your soul really needs. What is it worth at the end of the day? One of these is of infinite value and the other will end. In the kingdom, in Jesus Christ, in the God-man, fulfillment through meaning and purpose is received. It's given to us. It's given to us by God through Jesus Christ. So being united with the Son, here's where we come back to the God-man. He is fully human and fully divine. You are united with the Son in his humanity. And you are now made a child of God. You are adopted by God. There's your meaning and identity. You now belong to the one who made all things and who is himself limitless. And then because you're united with the king, you then inherit everything he inherits. Purpose. You get to reign with the son forever. You get to live in the life and joys of God forever. When that day arrives, when the far country becomes our country, when the shore draws near and we cross over into the land of eternal life and bliss, you will be there as a landowner alongside Jesus Christ. And that is your purpose. That is your destiny. Anything that's not oriented at that eternal end is not going to satisfy. 
a life oriented at that end, which of course involves all the things of this life, is actually what will satisfy. In the kingdom, ultimate happiness can only come when the Lord God is the final recipient of my efforts and the end goal of my life. Lewis is famous, uh, C.S. Lewis is famous for saying that if we have a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, then the only, the only logical conclusion is that we were made for another world. Um, I, love this, I love this image from the Church Fathers and from Augustine. Um, Augustine says, the bodies of irrational animals are bent toward the ground. So we talk about like being focused on the things of this world. Animals kind of walk around and they look at the ground and they look for food and all this stuff. But actually, um, he says, man was made to walk erect up, looking up with his eyes toward heaven as though to remind him to keep his thoughts on things above. I love that image. It's like the more that we focus on the things of the earth, the more that we live for the things of the world, the more like an animal we act, the, the less human we are. Oh, I'm gonna live life to the full and get everything out of this world. No, it's, that's not life to the full. That's actually acting like an animal. No, life to the full for a human involves the supernatural and the care of the soul and the fulfillment of our entire being and the infinite and joyful life of God. That's actually what we're called to. This is not to say that there's not true beauty in this world, and I do want to reiterate this, or true joys to be found here. Um, I have a a favorite spiritual author named uh, Thomas Traherne who says, um, this world is actually the temple wherein we're exalted to glory and honor, and it's the visible gate or porch of eternity. There's actually beauty and splendor in this world, but when they are made ultimate, they make terrible gods. It's when they're used and enjoyed as a window and a, and a, and a corridor, a conduit up to the Lord that they're actually in their right place and can give us what they're made to give us. Augustine said, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. This is what we're saying, that the God-man gives us this fulfillment that we could never attain on our own. So in conclusion, how are these linked together? How is this self-preservation and this this self-fulfillment linked together? Eternal life given to you by Jesus in the kingdom is not only everlasting throughout time, but is actually a quality of life marked by infinite joy and fulfillment. And it starts now. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you receive eternal life now, which means fullness of life, fullness of joy in the midst of the difficulties and and hardships of life. And what is happening now won't stop when your body dies. It goes on, and in fact, your body will be resurrected one day. Our final hope of life that never ends and life that is full of joy and fulfillment is only possible in the God-man, Jesus Christ. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says it this way, the form of this world distorted by sin is passing away. And God is preparing a new dwelling and a new earth in which righteousness dwells in which happiness will fill and surpass all the desires of peace arising in the hearts of men. May it be so for all of us, for our good and for the glory of God, the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. Amen.